1: This... Is Bloomberg Law
2: some complicated international law issues here? What kind of docket is Chief Justice Roberts facing?
1: Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts.
2: Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Neil Devins, a professor at William and Mary Law School,
1: and analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines.
2: Is this essentially the Fifth Circuit haunting? He has presided over a so-called hot bench at the Supreme Court.
1: Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from. Bloomberg. Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to Bloomberg Law on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Shortsleeve in for June Grosso. This month marked 20 years since one of the greatest financial collapses in history. Energy trading giant Enron filed for bankruptcy on December 2nd, 2001 becoming a symbol of corporate fraud and accounting malpractice. We're going to take you through the events that led to Enron's downfall, talk about the players involved, and what the world has learned since. To begin, I spoke with Ed Hers, a professor with the Economics Department at the University of Houston. Ed served as a consultant to the Justice Department's Enron Task Force. He talked about the rise of Enron and when suspicions about their behavior began. Did Enron uh, revolutionize uh, the trading of of natural gas and electricity? I mean, Fortune said that they were the most innovative company for six years running up to the year 2000.
3: Well, uh, the innovations they brought to natural gas occurred in the uh, 1990s, uh, early 90s. Um, When I came to Houston, one could buy and sell natural gas, and there might be a delta of 25 cents or even 50 cents between the bid and the ask. By the time Enron had brought standardization of contracts, of, of liquidity, and a trading platform to natural gas, the the margins had had shrunken dr- dramatically to less than a penny a contract. And uh, they did this with electricity. Uh, They did this with weather derivatives, heating days and cooling days. And as everyone in finance knows, that if we have more liquidity and more transparency in a market, the margins uh, begin to shrink. So for Enron to report ever-increasing profits, they would have to trade ever-increasing numbers of contracts, for example. And uh, this was something that, that everyone knew could not be sustained. So Enron's approach was to go look for other markets to apply this innovation to. They tried with paper companies. They tried with uh, hydroelectric power in Bolivia. They tried this with water companies in Brazil. They tried this with power plants in India. And in each market, they found they were unable to apply the Enron recipe and create profits the challenge was in 1993 they had changed their mode of accounting to mark to market, and they began to book profits on contracts uh, that that were maybe 10 years into the future. They were they were going to book them into that financial reporting period. Enron brought innovation to the market, but as they tried to extend this to other markets, they failed.
1: Ed, talk to us about uh, the connection here to the Valhalla scandal in the late 80s. Well, in
3: 1987, uh, Enron announced a a one-time $50 million after-tax loss due to uh, a couple of rogue traders up in New Jersey and New York, uh, their Valhalla office. Uh, they laid off 1500 workers at the time uh, my landlord was a senior vice president who had pushed the mojave pipeline project through for enron Uh, you know an old uh, hard asset guy in the trading circles in houston at the time it was known that that one trader in particular had taken a big hit if you if you just do some back of the envelope math like we did at the Restaurant that night, uh, 1,500 workers, $100,000 a head, 150 million a year, 1.5 billion over 10 years. That was the math. I bet two beers. In 2003, the Houston Chronicle reported that uh, the Valhalla scandal had cost Enron about 870 million dollars after tax, uh, or 1.5 billion pre-tax. So, you know, there was a history of obfuscation, a history of, of. Uh, covering up what was really going on.
1: As you look at uh, how they became the darling of the energy world, how would you describe that?
3: The management team had a, a, a cultish type of, of environment. Uh, Enron would go to the big business schools and outbid the Wall Street banks. And um, this, of course, was during the, the tech bubble of the late 90s. And they would outbid the tech companies. And they thought that they had really assembled a team of the smartest guys in the room. And uh, once they were assembled, they certainly didn't want to, to say that there was a, a problem, that the CEO didn't have any clothes on. The diligent exercise of end-of-quarter, end-of-financial uh, period uh, transactions that they pursued you know, really painted a facade of a, of a company that was growing. But all of the transactions that they were reporting, again, dark fiber, uh, water plants in Brazil, uh, uh, power plants in India, the the old-style utility-type earnings were certainly there, uh, but, but not the mega growth. There's no question there were really brilliant people working at Enron. The, the problem was that they had perfected gas trading and electricity trading uh, to a level that they couldn't generate the profits they used to do. And as they looked to go further into different markets, they were uh, uh, flummoxed by the fact that they, they were not successful.
1: Ed Herz, uh lecturer at the Department of Economics, College of uh, Liberal Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Houston. Appreciate you taking time and joining us on Bloomberg Law. Thank you, Joe.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: When did the dominoes fall for Enron? Leslie Caldwell is just the person to ask. She's a partner with the law firm Latham & Watkins. She was formerly an assistant attorney general for the criminal division of the Justice Department. And she led a team of investigators and prosecutors in the department's Enron task force. She talked to me about how Enron's transgressions were uncovered. When we all hear about Enron and and, and its spectacular collapse and how it happened in such a really a short period of time, from a prosecutor uh, investigator's standpoint, this, this essentially this house of card that collapsed, did that make it easier to investigate or, or, or harder?
4: I wouldn't say it made it either. It made it more imperative to investigate because, as you said, it was a spectacular collapse months before it declared bankruptcy. Enron had been ranked fortune number seven in U.S. corporations, and suddenly it was gone. So that suggested some kind of wrongdoing that really made it, critical that there be a, a prompt and thorough investigation.
1: Well, take us to the early days. What were the first few weeks like? What were you doing?
4: So Enron was a, a very large, sprawling corporation with a lot of different business lines and a lot of different uh, interests. And so I guess for the first couple of weeks, our main goal was to assemble a team of the right size and kind of learn the company, understand the company, understand these very complicated business lines that the company was in, and to get there, the FBI uh, assigned, actually handpicked agents from around the country who had experience in some of these very sophisticated financial products that Enron was using, like derivatives and and other products. So there were a bunch of FBI agents who had experience that's a little unusual for an FBI agent, for example, former investment bankers, former securities traders, uh, former derivatives traders. And then we also were putting together a team of prosecutors from around the country with significant experience in in significant cases, which was important because it it was clear that this was going to be not only complicated, but very high profile. So we wanted to make sure we had the right team.
1: When this assignment came to you in in 2002, in the beginning, you know, of an investigation, you often think you know what you have. Many times you think you know what you have. And then what, what you end up with is very different. I guess I'm curious is when you look at but you know what you when you were handed this in 2002 and what you ended up with how how different a picture was that
4: it was the kind of thing that when we started all we really knew other than le- learning about Enron's business was that this very large and powerful and influential and well-regarded company with very very important and well-regarded and connected senior executives had literally collapsed apparently overnight and there had been some murmurings in the press about potential shenanigans involving some off-books entities, but we really didn't know. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why a business can collapse besides criminal activity, and we were concerned that this, the haste with and the, the degree to which Enron collapsed suggested that there must be some kind of wrongdoing, but we really didn't know. Um, one thing we didn't know until we really rolled up our sleeves and got into it was just how much the kind of unfortunately corrupt leadership culture and messages uh, infected so many different corners of the company. And that was what we took a bit of time to unravel over the next couple of years.
1: Take us deeper then. You're not getting cooperations from key players. The board of directors has prepared a report. Uh, what happened next?
4: Well, we kind of looked through the report that the board had prepared and figured out different potential lines of inquiry assigned different teams to those different lines. So one group would be in charge of um, looking into the broadband business. One group would be in charge of looking into other aspects of the company. And then they would all kind of work and we would coordinate. And my role was to make sure everyone was doing what they were supposed to be doing and that things were moving forward and that we were all coordinating in terms of understanding what each group was finding and making adjustments accordingly. So we started, we looked at a lot of documents. We interviewed people. We educated ourselves about the, the business models, and I say models because there were very several different business models in play. We looked at third parties who may have been culpable in some fashion in supporting Enron's fraud or leading to its collapse. And so it was really we had a bunch of different work streams going at the same time.
1: When did you have an aha moment as you were doing your investigation?
4: At the very beginning, there was massive document destruction across the board at Arthur Anderson involving members of the Enron team all in different different geographies. That was of immediate interest. Um, we were very interested right off the bat in some special purpose entities that were being used by the company to move underperforming or negative assets off their books so they could continue to report favorable financial results. We saw some specific transactions um, that looked very suspicious that we focused more deeply on. We were able to get a conviction in the Anderson case. We then were able to bring charges against three British bankers and begin extradition proceedings involving them. And around that same time, which would have been about July of 2002, we got the first significant cooperating Enron insider witness, who has, was somebody who was a, kind of a right-hand man to the chief financial officer, Andy Fastow. Um, his sort of principal deputy right-hand man decided to cooperate with us. And that helped tremendously in advancing our understanding of internal discussions and who knew what, when at Enron. And that was tremendously helpful. And from then, which was, as I said, about July of 2002, there was a fairly quick momentum change, and additional people started cooperating um, and providing information, and the case the case started moving as you know, in the way we wanted it to more quickly.
1: Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, it came uh, as a result of this. Did this uh, make the world safer from uh, situations like Enron?
4: I think the collapse of Enron and the, assorted, the associated shock of that collapse and the magnitude of that collapse did actually get people's attention, and it made a difference. Obviously, it helped spawn Sarbanes-Oxley, which I think has been useful. But I think more importantly... The fact that there was a company that had corruption at the highest levels in the C-suite, which is something, frankly, you very rarely see, was really appalling and shocking, and has led to an entire new outlook in corporate America and globally about the importance of culture and tone at the top and compliance controls and integrity. Um, all of which I think has been a net plus for for the for the economy. Um, I'm not going to say that Enron changed the world, but it was certainly a wake-up call for the need for companies to take compliance much more seriously and focus much more on the top messages coming from their top people.
1: Leslie Caldwell, partner with the law firm Latham & Watkins. We appreciate you taking time and joining us today on Bloomberg Law.
4: Thank you. My pleasure.
1: That's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on www.bloomberg.com/podcast/law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every night at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. The show is produced by Eric Mallow for Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Shortslie. Thank you for listening, and remember to tune into the next edition of Bloomberg Law right here. Here on Bloomberg Radio
2: the countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global
1: leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. join heads of state,